Amen. Amen. All right, we're there in Luke chapter number 23. And of course, we have been going through a sermon series called Journey with Jesus. And it's a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. And if you remember, on Sunday night, we dealt with the crucifixion. Excuse me, on Sunday, we dealt with the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, on Sunday morning, we'll be dealing with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be in Luke chapter 24, the last chapter of this book. We'll spend uh, three services there, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And then we'll be done with this verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. We dealt with the crucifixion on Sunday, and we'll be dealing with the resurrection on Sunday, this coming Lord's Day. And tonight, of course, we are partaking in the Lord's Supper. Uh, So I want to preach a sermon. Of course, we always want to preach uh, God's Word, open up God's Word, and, and, and learn from God's Word. want to preach a shorter sermon tonight because of the fact that we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, and there was this little section of just seven verses, Luke 23, verses 50 through 56, that we had not yet covered. Of course, we dealt with the death of Christ, we'll deal with the resurrection, and in between, we've got the burial of Christ. And I want to just speak to you for a few minutes tonight on these few verses regarding the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper tonight. And one thing that I want you to understand when it comes to the burial of a crucified person in the ancient world during the Roman Empire is that their burial was not a foregone conclusion. In fact, history tells us that often those that were crucified by the Roman Empire would be not buried. They would not be given a proper burial. Oftentimes, their body would be allowed to stay on the cross and rot and be picked apart by wild animals. And when it was buried, they would be thrown into some sort of a mass unnamed grave. So Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, gives us these details about the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only seven verses from verse 50 to 56, but you'd be surprised how much there is to learn in the Word of God. And I want to give you just some several thoughts tonight. In fact, as quickly as possible, because we do have the Lord's Supper, I'd like to give you three thoughts uh, regarding these verses, what we can learn from the burial of Christ. And maybe you can jot these down on the back of your course of the week. There's a place where you take down some notes. And these uh, are statements or points or headers that you could use. The first thing I'd like you to notice here in verse number 50 is the boldness of some. The boldness of some. And if you want to jot down the points, you can... Write down the boldness of some. Notice there in Luke 23 and verse 50, the Bible says, And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. Now, when the Bible says that you're a good man, you must be a pretty good man. And not only was he a good man, but the Bible says that he was just, meaning that he was saved. He was a believer. Look at verse 51. The same had not consented to the counsel. Now, we're told in verse 50 that he was a counselor, meaning that he was part of the council, which was actually part of the council of the Jews that had decided to put Jesus to death. But here Luke tells us in a parenthetical statement that the same, referring to Joseph of Arimathea, had not consented to the council and deed of them. So though the council of the Jews had put Jesus or sentenced Jesus to death, Joseph of Arimathea 
went against that. He had not consented. Now, either he voted against it and his voice was not heard or maybe he was not present, but we're told that he did not consent to the counsel and the deed of them. Look at their verse uh, 51. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, which is why he's referred to as Joseph of Arimathea. Other passages call him Joseph of Arimathea, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. Notice verse 52. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Now, the reason that I had you write down as the heading, as the first point that we can learn from here, the boldness of some, is because in other Gospels we are told of Joseph that he was bold at this moment. At this moment, he was bold in the begging of the body of Jesus, the requesting of the body of Jesus. And real quickly, I'd like you to just look at these passages. You're there in Luke. That's obviously our text for tonight. But if you would, go with me to the Gospel of Mark, just one book back. If you go one book back from Luke to Mark, Mark chapter 15, we'll look at the parallel passage. Of course, we know that the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all have the stories of Jesus uh, lined up. Often those stories are parallel. John is a little different, the Gospel of John, but when it comes to the death of Christ and certain stories, they, we find parallels there as well. Mark chapter 15 and verse 42, notice what the Bible says, And now when even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, this is, of course, a reference to the crucifixion of Christ. He has, he's, he's died on the cross, and even 6 p.m. has come, and the next day is the Sabbath day. So if he's going to be taken off the cross and given a proper burial, this needs to happen quickly. The Bible tells us here in verse 42, and now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, look at verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable man, excuse me, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came, notice how Mark describes it, and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. So here we have this man, Joseph of Arimathea, which as far as characters in the Bible go, is not one of the most well-known characters in Scripture. Of course, if you know the New Testament, if you've read the Gospels, you're familiar with Joseph of Arimathea, but he's not just someone that people would name as a very well-known character in the Bible. But we are told that he was bold when he went to Pilate and he craved the body of Jesus. In Luke, we're told that he begged the body of Jesus. And of course, we can understand why that would require boldness, because Jesus had just been put to death. And Jesus had not been put to death because of his own crimes or his own sins. We know that he was innocent, of course. But not only do you and I know that Jesus was innocent as believers today, but the people that put him to death knew that he was innocent. And the reality is that Jesus had been put to death because of envy and because of a conspiracy between the temple and the empire. Between the Jews and the Romans, they have conspired together to put Jesus to death because his message was offensive, because his message put their power in danger. That was the reason that he had been put to death. So in order for Joseph of Arimathea at this time to kind of raise his hand and say, well, I'm with Jesus. I'm a believer. I'm a follower. I'd like to give him a proper burial. In order for him to do this at this time, of course, required boldness because he's identifying himself with someone that the Romans just put to death. 
He's identifying himself as a Jew with someone who the temple and the temple system just put to death. And for him to go to Pilate and say, I would like the body of Jesus, and he begged for the body of Jesus, and he craved for the body of Jesus, would require some boldness on his part, which is why Mark says that he went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. So we see that Joseph of Arimathea here is described as being bold when he goes and requests the body of Jesus to give a proper burial. Now you might be asking, well, why are you making a big deal about that and why is that so important? Well, I'd like you to notice something if you don't know it already about Joseph. Maybe you're thinking this already, but I'd like you to notice it. If you go to John chapter 19, you're there in Mark, you flip past the book of Luke into the gospel of John, John chapter 19. And when you get to John chapter 19, I'd like you to do me a favor, put, put, just put your finger there and, and keep your finger right there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come right back and I'd like you to be able to get there very quickly, John chapter 19. It's interesting to me that the gospel writers decided to let us know about this man Joseph. I mean, they could have easily, remember we talked about it on Sunday, when it came to the crucifixion of Christ, they gave us four words, and there they crucified him. There they crucified him. They simply, in four words, in one statement, told us about the crucifixion. And they could have easily done the same thing regarding the burial of Christ. Then they buried him. They could have easily just told us that he was buried and put in a sepulcher, and that was it. But the Holy Spirit decided to tell us and identify for us this man named Joseph of Arimathea. And not only to tell us about this man Joseph, but to tell us about the boldness that he had in asking for the body of Christ. It's interesting when you do a biography of the short mentions of Joseph in the Bible, you find that he had not always been bold. In fact, the word that you might use to describe him is the opposite of bold. It's timid. Notice there in John 19, verse 38. The Bible says, and after this, Joseph of Arimathea, John 19, 38, being a disciple of Jesus. Notice what it says. But secretly, for fear of the Jews. Remember, he was a counselor. He sat on the council of the Jews. He sat on the council of the people who despised and hated and rejected Jesus more than anyone else. And Joseph of Arimathea himself being a believer, Joseph of Arimathea himself being a disciple during the life of Christ had not been characterized by the word bold, like we're told in Mark. If anything, we would have said that he was timid about his faith. He was a disciple of Jesus, the Bible says, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He was a secret service Christian. He was undercover. That's how some of you are at work. He was a believer. But nobody knew it. He was a follower of Jesus, but he kept it quiet. He kept it under wraps. He was not bold in his Christianity. He was not bold in his testimony. He surely was not bold in his soul winning, like Paul tells us, that I might open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel. He never opened his mouth boldly to make known anything about Jesus during the life of Christ. But now, when Jesus has died, now the Bible tells us that he went in boldly unto, the, unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. 
Now, you might think that I'm making a big deal about this, and maybe I am. I don't know. I don't think there's anything in the Bible that is coincidental. And I think the fact that the Bible tells us that he went in boldly in Mark 15, but John tells us that he was before this a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. I think the Bible's trying to tell us something. But if you don't agree with me, if you keep reading verse 38, it becomes so obvious that God is trying to make this point that I think it's, it's silly to not see it. Notice 38, verse 38 and verse 39. John 19, 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, notice the words again, but secretly for fear of the Jews, you could write in the margin of your Bible there, timid, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. In verse 39, we find out that uh, Joseph was not working alone. Joseph of Arimathea was not alone in his begging of the body. He had an accomplice, and his accomplice was somebody that you might recognize as well, verse 39, and there came also Nicodemus. We haven't read about this guy in a while. And there came also Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3. What does the Bible tell us about Nicodemus? And there came also Nicodemus, look at it, verse 39, which at the first came to Jesus by night. Isn't that what the Bible tells us in John 3? That Nicodemus came to Jesus at night or by night. Why did he come at night? He came in the cover of darkness. Why? Because he did not want anybody to know. And here you've got these two men. And the Bible does not tell us that Nicodemus was a just man. does not tell us that he was a believer. We don't know if he was saved. I would assume that Nicodemus was saved. Otherwise, I don't think he'd be helping Joseph of Arimathea to bury the body of Jesus. But we know this, that Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He has that amazing conversation, that famous conversation where Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. But here's what we know about Nicodemus, that he came at night. He was timid and shy. I would guess, I would assume that he got saved at some point because he's here helping to... uh, bury the body of the Lord Jesus Christ but we never saw him again why because he was timid why because he was scared why because he and Joseph of Arimathea during the ministry of Christ excuse me and I don't mean this in a rude way but they were cowards They were scared. They were afraid. They were not willing to take up their cross like Jesus taught and follow Jesus publicly. But when Jesus died, they got bold. It's interesting to me because the disciples who followed Jesus publicly at this time during the death of Christ are scared and hiding. And the disciples during the life of Christ who were scared and hiding are now coming out with boldness. The boldness of some as they come to beg for the body of Jesus, to crave for the body of Jesus, to give Jesus a proper burial. We see, first of all, in these short few verses, the boldness of some. You say, what are the takeaways? What can we learn from this? Let me give you a couple of takeaways. Number one, not everyone arrives, as, other do, as others do, to bold discipleship. For some, it may take a little longer. You know, we, we as believers need to be careful to not be so judgmental. Obviously, our goal is we want people to grow. Our goal is we want people to mature. Our goal is we want people to, to do the most, the best they can 
for God after Easter, once we're done celebrating Easter, I'm going to begin a brand new sermon series on Sunday mornings called Helping You Reach Your Full Potential. And we're going to be talking for several weeks on how to reach our full potential that God has given us. And that's our goal. Our goal is to help every single believer reach their full potential in the will of God. But at the same time, we have to realize that not everyone arrives as others do to bold discipleship in the same way. Some people just take a little longer. Some people require a little more time. Some people, and we should just be, we should be patient with them because the Josephs of Arimatheas and the Nicodemuses out there who are maybe a little more shy, a little more timid, hey, maybe one day God can transform them. And here's what we can learn. It's never too late to take a public stand for Jesus. They never did it while he was alive. But at his death, and by the way, Joseph and Arimathea and Nicodemus, they don't know that in three days Jesus is going to resurrect. But what we learn from these two men is that if you've been timid and cowardly, if you've been shy and a secret service Christian, it's never too late. It's never too late to take a public stand for Jesus. So we saw, first of all, in these few verses, the boldness of some. Like you notice, secondly, in verse 53, and if you're taking notes, if you'd like to jot down a heading, you can write this down. We saw, number one, the boldness of some. I'd like you notice, secondly, the borrowing of a tomb. Notice the Bible tells us here that Jesus borrowed a tomb. In verse 53, the Bible says, And he, Joseph of Arimathea, if you go back to Luke 23 in verse 53, And he, Joseph of Arimathea, took it down, referring to the body of Jesus, and wrapped it in linen. We're going to come back to that here in a minute. And laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone. How how much time do you think it takes to carve out a sepulcher, to carve out a room inside of a stone? Probably required a lot of work. Probably required a lot of workers. This was a nice place to be laid. And laid it, referring to his body, in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. It's interesting to me that Jesus does not like to share. He comes in a virgin's womb where never any man had been born. And he's laid in a new sepulcher wherein never man before was laid. What... The Bible is highlighting for us here, and you may have already made the connection, is this. Go go to Matthew 27, if you would. Matthew 27. Remember I told you to keep your place in John 19? We're going to go back to John 19 here in a minute. But keep your finger in Matthew 27 as well, because we're going to come back to Matthew 27. We're going to go to John 19, then we're going to come back to Matthew 27. So I'd like you to get there quickly. When the Bible tells us that these men, Joseph of Arimathea, and then we learned that Nicodemus' accomplice was there as well, When the Bible tells us that they laid him in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid, what we learn about these guys is this, that these guys were prosperous. They were financially prosperous. The Bible says it this way. They were rich. Look at verse Matthew 27, verse 57. When the even was come, there came 
Here Matthew just flat out says it. There came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph. We're told that Joseph is a good man. We're told that Joseph is a just man. We're told that Joseph is a counselor. We're told that Joseph is a believer. We're told that Joseph is a disciple. And we're also told that Joseph was a rich man. There came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. Go back to John 19. We're going to come back to Matthew 27 here in a minute. So keep your finger there. Go back to John 19. Notice that these guys are prosperous. These guys are rich. You've got to be rich to own a sepulcher that's been hewn in a stone wherein never man before was laid because it was Joseph's tomb. It was meant for Joseph. He'd already carved it out. It was already prepared and ready, and he's giving it as an offering. He doesn't know Jesus is going to resurrect. He's giving it to Jesus. Now, it's a borrowed tomb. He doesn't know that, but Jesus just needs it for a few days, and he's going to give it back. It's a borrowed tomb, but this man, Joseph of Arimathea, is gifting and donating this tomb to Jesus. That's not it. Look at John 19, verse 39. Remember Nicodemus? And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought, notice what the Bible says, a mixture of myth and, uh, of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. I don't know how much that costs, but it just sounds expensive. They brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. Verse 40, then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. And here's all I'm saying is that these guys, obviously the Bible tells us they were rich. These guys are obviously rich. They're prosperous, but they obviously have resources. I mean, the, the, the death of Jesus happened fairly quickly. He was arrested in one night, and the next morning, he's being crucified, and that caught these guys by surprise. Joseph of Arimathea may have had a little bit of a heads up since he was a counselor that sat on the council, but it's not like they had weeks to prepare. These men watched Jesus die, and when they realized that he was dead, they said, it's about to be 6 p.m. It's about to be even. Tomorrow's a Sabbath day. We need to give Jesus a proper burial. We need to take him off, uh, off the cross. These guys, had re- they had resources. I mean, he, he was able to go in and talk to Pilate. I don't know how hard it is to get an audience with Pilate, but he got it. They got linen clothes. They got linen uh, 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 clothes to, 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 to put his body in. They, they got these spices, the mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. I mean, these guys were men with resources. Not only are they helping each other, but they probably have servants that are helping them. They're probably telling their servants, you, go uh, get some linen uh, uh, garments. You, go get some myrrh. And you, go pick up, uh, go, go to the storage and, and pick up that, those aloes. And, and, and you three, go take that stone off the tomb. We're going to have to open it up. And, and th- these were men that were prosperous men. I want you to understand something. Go back to Matthew 27. I want you to look at verse 59 and 60, Matthew 27, 59 and 60. And when Jesus had taken the body, he wrapped it. Oh, excuse me. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Here's where the Bible tells us it was Joseph's own tomb, verse 60, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. 
Why is this emphasized? Why is this documented in all the Gospels? I ask you to keep your place in Matthew, and I ask you to keep your place in John. You can lose your places there, but I'd like you to go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, in the Old Testament, towards the end of the Old Testament, you've got those major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Isaiah 53, do me a favor, when you get to Isaiah, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there, because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back. We're going to be done in about five minutes, all right? Maybe less, but I want you to see this. We see the borrowing of a tomb. We see these two men who were prosperous men. But these guys were not only prosperous, I want you to understand something, these guys were prophesied. This, this story, this whole event, Joseph of Arimathea just out of nowhere, finally growing a little bit of a backbone and getting some boldness, finding his friend Nicodemus to say, you come with, I know you're a believer too, you come with me. And they go and they ask Pilate for the body and they go and get the sepulchre ready, get the linen clothes ready, get the myrrh and the aloes ready. All of this had already been predicted. Isaiah 53 and verse 9, we saw Isaiah 53 last week. I'm not going to go through the whole chapter. It's one of the most famous messianic prophetic, uh, prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53 and verse 9, the Bible says, And he, referring to Jesus, referring to the Messiah, made his grave with the wicked. That's a reference to the thieves on the cross. And, don't miss it, with the rich in his death. You say, how do you... How do you how did he make his grave with the rich in his death? Well, he got laid in a rich man's sepulcher. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. I want you to understand that these men were prosperous, but these men had been prophesied. We see this borrowing of a tomb because of the fact that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus Decided to give Jesus a proper burial. So here's the takeaways. The good news is this. God is no respecter of persons. The gospel comes for the rich and the poor. We see this overwhelming emphasis in the gospels of Jesus dealing with the poor. But you notice that the rich weren't left out. There was a place for them as, as well. And we see here that God's providence is at work all of the time and everywhere. Wow. You see, you and I, we, we get these complexes and we think, look how amazing I am. Look how amazing we are. If God's going to use anyone, it's going to be me. And if God doesn't use me, then he has no one else to use. And let me tell you something. You're important and I'm important and God wants to use us. And if, God, if we quit, then we are hurting our own potential and the potential of this church to reach the gospel. But don't ever forget that there are 7,000 who have not bowed their knees to Baal. And if you quit and if you give up, Someone else will step in. Joseph and Nicodemus were not willing and ready to serve and to be part of the program when the disciples were there. But when the disciples got scared, God said, I'll just use these guys. And when God needed someone with money, (laughs) he found someone with money. Because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And the gold in every mine. I mean, you can simply just look at our vision offering. 
You ask yourself, how can a church like this, literally meeting next to a methadone clinic, produce the type of things that are produced around here? And I will tell you, it is because God is not in need of anyone. God has what he needs. These guys were prosperous, and these guys were prophesied. Let me give you one last, very quickly, one last thought. Go, go back to Luke 23. We saw in verses 50, 51, and 52 the boldness of some. We saw in verse 53, borrowing of a tomb. I'd like to just real quickly, I'd like you to notice in verses 54, 55, and 56, the body of Christ. The Bible says in verse 53, And he, Joseph of Arimathea, took it, the body of Jesus, down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, where never man before was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also, which came with him from Galilee, followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. Say, why are they doing that? Joseph and Nicodemus just did that. And they're doing it because Joseph and Nicodemus just did it. And these women, obviously, I don't know, in my opinion, are looking at it and thinking, "Uh, no, that needs to be redone. (laughs) Now, in Joseph and Nicodemus' defense, not only were they men, but they were in a rush. They had to get it done before 6 p.m., but these ladies thought, "Mm, I don't know, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. We see here that the body of Jesus was laid. It was put in a tomb for three days and three nights. go, Go back to Isaiah 53 if you would. I'm out of time. I'm just going to read a few verses to you. While you turn to Isaiah 53, let me read to you from Acts. The Bible says in Acts 13, 35, Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, this is a Acts quoting psalms, that's a prophecy of Jesus, Thou shalt not suffer, the word suffer means allow, thine holy one to see corruption. The term holy one is a reference to the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the Christ. In Acts 2.31, we're, giving the co- we're given the commentary. What does that mean? Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. In verse 31, we're told, He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. I want you to understand that the body of Christ was buried, and it resurrected three days later, and it, it did not see corruption, meaning it did not begin to decay. Sometimes people ask the question, why three days? And I'll be honest with you, I I don't know. If I had to guess, I would say that maybe it has something to do with one day for every member of the Godhead. That's my best guess. But honestly, it probably has to do with the fact that any more than three days in the body would have began to corrupt. If you remember the story of Lazarus, the Bible tells us that he had been dead for four days and they said of his body that it stinketh. So... Three days were the amount of days that were chosen before his body would see corruption. His body was taken care of. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus made sure of it. They put it in a sepulcher where it would be taken care of and it would not see corruption. But that is not the end of the story. 
The soul of Christ was somewhere. In Acts 2.31, we're told he's seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. Now, I realize that what I'm about to say is controversial, and I don't understand why, because I'm just reading the Bible to you. I actually didn't make a comment. I just read the Bible. But it's controversial today to say that his soul went to hell when Acts 2.31 says that his soul, he seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. Neither his flesh did see corruption. For three days and three nights, the Bible tells us, and not only the Bible, Jesus himself said that, that, he said that as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, which is hell. You say, well, why, why did his soul go to hell? Because if you understand the fact that Jesus was paying for the sins of the world, and there's a dual uh, payment for sin. It brings physical death, yes, which is why Jesus physically died, and he will resurrect to show his power over death. But there's also the second death. Hell, the lake of fire. And he paid for that as well. Isaiah 53, verse 10, let me just give you the verses, we'll finish this up. Isaiah 53, 10, remember the most famous messianic prophecy of Christ Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Notice this phrase. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Study the offerings in the Old Testament. You know what they all, what was done with all of them? They were all burnt. And especially the burnt offering, the difference between the burnt offering and all the other offerings is not the fact that it was burnt because all of the offerings were pretty much burnt. The difference between the burnt offering is that they didn't get to eat any of it. The whole thing was burnt. But every offering was burnt with fire. And then Isaiah tells us, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. So the Bible tells us his soul went down to hell. Seeing this, he spake before of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh to see corruption. Then Isaiah tells us that God made his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, he shall see of the travail, don't miss it, of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Not just on the tree in his body, but also as a sacrifice for sin in his soul. Look at verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. See, Jesus died a physical death to pay for our sins, but he also died the death of hell. His soul was not left in hell, neither did his body see corruption. Look at the last part of verse 12, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That was fulfilled on the cross when he hung next to two thieves, and he bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So what are we doing tonight? We are remembering the death of Christ. But don't, don't think that it was just a physical death. He paid the wages of sin as death. A physical death, but that includes the second death. He didn't just 
save me from a physical death. He saved me from having to go to hell. And that sacrifice is what we are remembering tonight. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the great sacrifice of the cross. We thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross to pay for our sins. But that wasn't it. His soul went to hell. His body was buried. And like we will celebrate on Sunday, he resurrected. Conquering death, conquering hell. Proving to all that he truly was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Anointed One, the Christ, God in the flesh. We thank you for that. I pray that you'd bless the next few moments as we partake in the Lord's Supper. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. At this time, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now I'm going to step down and give you some instructions as we